Colossians 2, Lord willing, we'll get back to Malachi next week, but not this week. Colossians 2. You know, Paul had a great love for the churches that were started in the first century, either by himself or by others. Nevertheless, he loved them dearly. And if his prayer life is any indication at all of that, he seemed to always have the churches uh, that he had started and others had started in uppermost in his mind. You see that when you go through the epistles. You can see it at the beginning of just about every letter. For example, the church in Rome, Romans 1.9. Paul says, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. He's thinking about the church at Rome. He's praying for them. <clears throat> Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you. It's uh, something that he did on a regular basis. Uh, he says to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus 1.16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then Philippi, Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Praise for the church at Philippi. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, Mike quoted this this morning, after describing the insane trials that Paul went through, all those difficulties he went through, he says... Um, after all that, he says, you know, in, in addition to all the stuff I've been through, dangers from my countrymen, dangers in the rivers and the city and so on, in addition to all that, there is uh, the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So Paul had a great concern for the church. He carried this weight upon him of the churches that had been planted. They're newly planted churches, basically. Not all that old when it comes down to it. And he thought about them. He prayed for them. He wrote to them. And for different reasons, to combat all kinds of different problems in the churches, maybe interpersonal problems, maybe problems of unity, maybe problems of heresy. Paul was concerned for the spiritual well-being of the churches in the first century. <clears throat> he had a great heart for them. That attitude can be seen in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul said, we, him and his co-workers, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother. Listen to how he described himself. We, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us, he says. So Paul compares himself and his co-workers to a nursing mother, concerned and caring, cherishing her own children. So for Paul, this was not an obligation. This was a labor of love. He was deeply concerned about the churches and those believers in the churches, willing to lay down his life for the churches. Uh, so important were they to him. And the church at Colossae that we're going to look at tonight is no exception. Uh, Paul had never been to there, by the way. He had never been to that church. He had never been to the city of Colossae, those, that city located in the Lycus Valley and the three cities there, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae located probably like a tri-city area, no doubt, uh, no less than, no more than 10 miles probably away from each other or so. They're all kind of like three cities together, and Paul was kind of writing to all of them under the name of Colossae. And this church had probably been started by a guy named Epaphras. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> it says there, uh, he talks about the gospel in verse 5, the gospel which has come to you, you Colossians. Just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, 
our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. So they had learned this from Epaphras, who was, one of, who was a, a man who lived in the city of Colossae. Paul didn't start this church. In fact, Paul was not even, he was in prison at the time, according to chapter 4, verse 18. So he's in prison. Epaphras informs Paul of what's going on in the city of Colossae. He tells him about the progress that's being made, and as well as the problems that are taking place in that city. And there was good news, and there was bad news in Colossae. The good news is the people there were um, receiving the gospel. They were believing the gospel, and they were bearing fruit. They were growing in grace, and they were growing strong in the Lord. It was a great thing that was happening. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says this, For even though I am absent in body, I'm not there. I'm in prison. He's far away. I'm absent in body. Nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. I hear you guys are stable in your faith. I hear you're growing in grace, chapter 1. And I'm thankful for that, he says. That's the good news. However, there's bad news also. And the bad news is there was this heresy that was infiltrating the church in Colossae. And we don't have time to go into it tonight, but let's just say this. The main element in this um, philosophy or heresy that was uh, infiltrating this church was that they had a deficient view of Christ. They had a low view of Christ. Their view of Christ was not adequate. It was not scriptural. This is, this is almost always the case in heresies, by the way. Bad, wrong view of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says, <clears throat> see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the what? The tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, or literally, and not according to Christ. So this philosophy, this heresy being spread did not have its basis in Christ. That's the biggest problem of all with this heresy. And yet it's, it's starting to come in, the city of Colossae is starting to come in the church and, try to, and trying to get a, a handle on people there. And this is up, we've always got to worry about false doctrine coming in or some weird, strange teaching. There's always something out there uh, that's, that's coming by down the pike trying to get believers to be sucked into it. It's always the case. And this this heresy had all the trappings of religion if you read through chapter 2 it looked very religious this system but it was a christless religion they didn't they didn't have room for christ it had no basis in christ it was, it was not according to christ and so paul is in prison he can't visit the church personally he's concerned about he hears about this heresy he's very you can imagine he's very concerned about this whole situation and so he's struggling inwardly look at chapter 2 verse 1 he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, I have on your behalf. And for those who are in the city down the road, Laodicea, Hierapolis for that matter, and for those who have not personally seen my face. I haven't seen you guys, but I'm concerned. I'm worried about this heresy that's coming in. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. I say this so, no, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. In other words, he's concerned lest these new, relatively new believers are spiritually harmed by this false doctrine that's, that's being uh, infiltrating the church. He's struggling over this. So he writes this letter to combat the heresy that's there. And he gives instructions to the believers as to how they can remain strong in the Lord and uh, against these false teachers. And I want to pick it up at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, basically tonight. This is a transitional point in the letter. 
And what Paul is doing here in this transition is that he is speaking to the issue of the lordship of Christ. That's what this is about, the lordship of Christ. And that's what he's talking about. By the way, this whole book, he's, he's, he's moving towards this one goal, Christ is Lord. He's everything to the believer, everything. And that's what he wants to get at. And so the Colossians are to keep in mind what they have been taught from the beginning. Christ is nothing less than Lord. And that they must live under his lordship. That's what it is, it's all about. They're to live under his lordship. That's what he's saying in these verses. First of all, there's the command to live under the lordship of Christ. It's in verses 5 and 6. The command <clears throat> to live under the lordship of Christ. Verse 5 again. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you, Colossians, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, the Colossians have demonstrated their faith in Christ. As Paul makes very plain in chapter 1, you guys, the gospel's come to you. It's bearing fruit in your life. This is great. You've demonstrated your faith in Christ. I see that you have the stability uh, in your faith in Christ. It's a tremendous thing. He says, he says now continue this way. Don't, don't, go, don't get off track. You're doing great. Stay on course. Continue to live with your life centered upon Christ. That's what he's saying here, the whole idea. He says, as therefore, as, as you have received Christ Jesus. Now, what does he mean by receiving Christ? You hear a lot of people saying, have you received Christ as your Savior? You hear that often, right? <clears throat> uh, you need to receive Christ as your Savior, yes. Um, but there's something more here to this word in this context than meets the eye. And it's somewhat of a technical term. It means this. To receive here means to receive something delivered by tradition. To receive something delivered by tradition. Now, you say, what does that mean? Well, it goes back to the apostles, really. Revelation, as you read in the New Testament, the revelation of God was given to the apostles, and they handed that down to the church. And the churches, uh, they, they practiced those traditions. In other words, this is the word of God being given to the churches, and, what, and that is good tradition. Um, for example, Acts 2.42 that says the early church devoted themselves to what? What kind of a teaching did they devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching. The apostles received the word from God. They taught the people. That has been, been handed down to the churches. And what the apostles taught was what the Lord revealed. The Apostle Paul, for example, didn't teach anything that wasn't revealed by God. It was God's word. And to forsake what the apostles taught was to teach heresy, basically. Um, Paul speaks of this kind of idea several places in the New Testament. Listen to this. I don't know if you've ever thought about traditions being good or not. We usually consider traditions only in a, about, many times in a bad sense when it comes to churches and gospel and things of that nature. But in this, it's a good sense here. 1 Corinthians 11.2, for example. Paul praises uh, those people in, 1 Corinthians, in the Corinthian church because it says, you're, you're holding firmly to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. In effect, he, well, he was talking about the Word of God there. I've delivered the Word of God to you, a tradition handed down to me by God, re- revealed by God. You're holding to those traditions. That's great. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, he says, Paul says, I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper. In other words, that's a tradition we want to keep, right? The Lord's Supper, we want to do that. That's a, that's a tradition that came from God, came from Christ. Galatians 1.9, <clears throat> Paul says, 
As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, same terminology as in Colossians, if any man is preaching to you a gospel to what contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. Verse 11, <coughs> Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul handed down that which, which the Lord had given him, that gospel. That's a tradition we've got to hold on to, the gospel of Christ. We've got to keep that tradition. We've got to promote that tradition and propagate that tradition. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, another uh, reference to this idea. Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Paul's teaching the word of God again. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So you can see this idea is mentioned again and again by Paul. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 as well. It talks about the gospel which they had received and Paul had gotten it from the Lord and gave it to them. And it goes on and on like that. And when it comes to the book of Colossians, the focus in the whole book of Colossians is strongly on the person of Christ. Colossians is really all about the person of Christ, who he really is. He's, he's the Lord. He's God. So in Colossians 2.6, the tradition that was received by the Colossian believers is Christ himself. And that's the tradition they've got to keep. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And that not only involves believing on Christ, it involves uh, the teaching about Christ and about his significance. So there's, there's good traditions as well as bad traditions that have been handed down from generation to, to generation. Now, we all know the Catholic Church has many traditions. And they say, they like to say that they have two sources of authority. And one is the Word of God, the Bible is their source of authority. And another source of authority is church tradition. That's what they say. Uh, now, we know that as true believers in Christ, we have one source of authority. We, we base everything we believe solely on one source, not a systematic theology book, not somebody's theology, none of that, not tradition, none of that, that that's been handed down through the centuries by some church. Our source of authority is the scriptures, right? The cry of the Reformation, sola scriptura, it's the word of God alone. That's the real source of authority. Um, and, and in reality, in the Catholic Church, the real source of authority is church tradition. Trust me, that trumps the scriptures every time. Scripture is like an addendum to them. Something that sounds good, it sounds spiritual, religious, let's throw this in for, to be, for the mix. But really, Catholics, trait they've got so many traditions they've layered up through the centuries. Absolutely unbelievable. I talked to a guy one time who was a Catholic about the gospel, and <clears throat> he had a statue of Mary in his home. And uh, he said, I love that lady right there. And we talked about Mary. And I, and I didn't realize it, but Mary, it's not only that the, 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 they consider her sinless, but they, she's also been assumed, uh, up to, they call it the assumption of Mary, assumed into heaven like Christ was. Ascended to heaven at the time, I didn't know that. And, and they've got so many traditions they've come up with. And obviously these traditions have no basis whatsoever in the word of God. They've come up with them on their own. They're man-made traditions. That's where tradition is a bad thing. And you know what? If we're not careful in, in our church or in other churches, 
that are Bible-believing, we can come up with traditions that have no basis in the Word of God as well. And then we begin to follow this constantly. We've got to do this in our church. The only thing we've got to do in our church is traditions based upon the Word of God. What we need to do here. Tradition can be a good thing, though. When it comes to the gospel and the person of Christ, that's the tradition we want to hold to. That's what we want to hold to. <clears throat> These are the traditions that, that, we, that we, we want to keep. Christ is our tradition. Now, he's our tradition. And worship of Christ is our tradition. And what the Word of God says about Christ is our tradition. That's the tradition that has God's stamp of approval on it. He says here that uh, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Um, so Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and the Colossians, like ourselves, have, have entered into his lordship, and they're to live under his lordship. We're to live under the lordship of Christ. Now, there's, a, there's a controversy that <clears throat> has been around for several years now. Um, it's referred to as the lordship controversy. You've heard of lordship controversy. You've heard about the lord, lordship salvation, rather, not controversy. Lordship salvation. You've heard of that, and I've heard of it. And I've, I'll be honest with you. I've never liked the term lordship salvation. I'll tell you why in a second. And by the way, John MacArthur has written two books on the subject, The Gospel According to Jesus and The Gospel According to the Apostles. You probably know about this, but he doesn't like the term either, Lordship Salvation. Listen to this. <clears throat> it's interesting. I thought I'd give it to you in, verse, in uh, uh, chat, uh, page, well, what book are we in here? In page 7 of The Gospel According to the Apostles, he says this, I do not like the term Lordship Salvation. I reject the connotation intended by those who coined the phrase. It insinuates that a, submission, a submissive heart is extraneous or supplementary to saving faith. It's outside of saving faith. Although I have reluctantly <clears throat> used the term to describe my views, it's a concession to popular usage. Surrender to Jesus' lordship is not an addendum. It's not an addition to the biblical terms of salvation. The summons to sub- submission is at the very heart of the gospel invitation throughout the scriptures. And so I don't, I don't like the term either because... Uh, for this, this simple reason. Christ is Lord. When a believer gets saved, that's what the New Testament says. He's Lord. There's no need to add the term Lordship salvation to it. We're saved. A believer's saved. He receives Christ as Lord. Now, MacArthur defines this Lordship salvation in the following way. He says this, The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. It's repentance. And then there's the yielding to Christ's authority. That's what the Lordship of Salvation... I don't know why anybody, any believer would argue this point, and yet I've heard it argued by people. Why would you argue this? The New Testament teaches that when a believer is saved, when a person is saved, Christ is his Lord, Christ is her Lord. There's no other teaching than that. That's what it says. Truth is blatantly obvious. It's not up for discussion by anybody at all. Uh, a person who doesn't understand this has not either read the New Testament or doesn't understand it. One of the two. That's just how it is. Somebody, you, know, you say, well, what if somebody doesn't agree with it? Well, then you don't agree with the New Testament then. It's that simple. A follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is submissive to Christ as Lord, to, to, submissive to his authority, right? And he's going, to deli- he's going to demonstrate in his life by obeying his master that Christ is Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. People talk about loving Christ, but... Are they keeping his command? Are we keeping his commandments? Do we, do we really love him? If we love him, we'll show it by keeping his commandments. And what's often said about this, and 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 what is and what the Bible says about this are two different things. Christ is Lord. Our lives belong to him. It's not complicated, is it? 
We like to rationalize and, and make excuses for ourselves, but the bottom line is Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul wants to emphasize this. This whole book is about the lordship of Christ. Our lives are to be centered upon uh, Christ as Lord. Now, that's the constant theme of Paul's. It's not just here in Colossians, but it's all it's, it's several places in his writings. For example, Romans 10, 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that verse that we like to use in, in uh, witnessing often, or I don't know if you guys still use that verse in witnessing or not, but we used to back in the day. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There it is again. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. He's the Lord, we're the servant. Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that may have been, that phrase, Jesus is Lord, that may have been an early Christian confession. may have been something that Christians just confess. And by the way, it would be good if it was a a confession nowadays in our church, our churches. Jesus Christ is Lord. And certainly any true believer would make that confession gladly. Why would a true believer argue with this point? So uh, Colossians 2.6 here is, is, as I said, a transitional point in the letter to the Colossians. Paul is simply now summarizing in this chapter what he's already specified in chapter 1 about Christ being Lord. In other words, to say that Christ is Lord is to say what Colossians 1.15 says. Look at Colossians 1.15. It's, simple, it's to say that he is the image of the invisible God. I mean, how, how, more can you, how, how, how much further can you go down the road and say Christ is Lord except to say he's the image of the invisible God? Colossians 1.15, to say that Christ is Lord is to say that he's the firstborn of all creation. Mike referred to this this morning. In other words, he has priority over all creation. It's to say he's the creator, verses 16 and 17, to say he's Lord. It's to say in verse 17, 16 and 17, he holds all things together. It's to to say that he's Lord is to say, according to verse 18 of chapter 1, he's the head of the church. According to verse 26, to say that Christ is Lord is to say that he's the mystery of God, which Paul preached. And according to 118 again, to say that Christ is Lord is to say that he's got to have first place in everything. That's what Paul is driving at in this letter. He's to have first place in everything, preeminent, preeminence of Christ. So Paul connects what he's already said with what will come after with this central thought, Christ Jesus is Lord. That's how it is. No heresy, no man-made tradition can dethrone Christ. I don't care what it is. So Paul makes this issue of Christ being the Lord. These guys were saying that Christ wasn't Lord, these these heretics. Wasn't Lord. Something lesser than that. Paul's saying, no, he's Lord, and you live under his lordship. This is a command. He says, Walk in him as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's the command, the word walk. It's the idea of how a person conducts himself in daily living. Walk. You see that, that word translated in different Bibles, different, different translations, different ways. Some Bibles translate the word uh, walk as uh, live your life, maybe. Um, something like that. Believers are those who walk with God. They live their life before God. 
They keep in step with the Spirit. And this walk with God is a continual one. It's something we do today and the next day and tomorrow and all of our lives. When we wake up, every day our conduct should be glorifying to God because he's our Lord, right? That doesn't cease. But look at the phrase carefully in verse 6. It says, so as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, and that's how you receive him as your Lord, so continue to walk that way. Walk, and look at the word in. <clears throat> walk in him. Walk in him. What does it mean to say, walk in Christ? Well, it means, to be, it means that our lives are incorporated in Christ. It means that we're in union with Christ. It, it means that we're to remain centered upon Christ. He's the sum and substance of, of our entire being, of our lives. Uh, he's everything to us, is what he's saying. Remember uh, Paul's words in Philippians 1, for to me to live is what? To live is Christ, right? That's what it's all about. You can sum up our, our walk, you can sum up our lives in one word, Christ. He's, he's to be everything to us. We have received Christ as Lord, and now what do we do? Change directions? We've got this heresy coming. And no, we, that's what we, we stick with what we learned already. We continue to walk in him as Lord. He's Lord of our lives from beginning to end. This is the command to live under the lordship of Christ. Paul wants to combat the, the heresy this way. Secondly, notice the characteristics of living under the lordship of Christ. The characteristics of living under the lordship of Christ. What is it that characterizes those who walk in Christ? Well, there are four characteristics that help us to understand what it is to walk in him. The first two are word pictures. <clears throat> they belong together. They're, they're passive words, which shows that God is doing the work in their lives. God is working in their lives. He's been at work among the Colossian believers. The first characteristic comes from the language of horticulture, and the second from architecture. Now, that's not unusual, by the way. He talks about planning. He talks about uh, building. It's not unusual for Paul to do that. He does it in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. He talks about, he says, uh, Paul says there, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the, the Corinthians are compared to a, belie- a building, Paul says. And Paul says, I, I'm a wise master builder. I've laid a foundation for your faith. So he cares, compares them to a building. That's not unusual for Paul to do that. So what does it mean to walk in him? Look at verse 7. First of all, it means we are firmly rooted. Firmly rooted. Having been firmly rooted, it says. That speaks of a settled condition. The Colossian believers have been firmly rooted. Rooted in Christ Jesus. Just like a tree has deep roots that go into the ground, so the, Colossians, so the believer is deeply rooted in Christ. All believers are. All of us are. Remember the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, Matthew 13? Sower sows the seed, the seed is the word of God. And there's four different types of hearers. Those who hear the gospel, uh, you know, the seed, the seed of the word of God falls on hard ground. There are people who hear the gospel, and, and then Satan comes by and takes the word away. They forget about it. Um, nothing really happens in their life. Another uh, hears the gospel, and the seed falls on rocky ground, and there's, there's no depth of soil there. There's thorns that choke it. And then the third seed falls on thorny, I'm sorry, third seed falls on thorny ground, and no fruit comes from that. But then there's the seed that falls on good soil, and it bears fruit, right? It, it bears fruit. Different uh, kinds of fruit, different amounts of fruit, um, and there's and that's that's the last illustration is, is shows what happened to the life of the Colossian believers. That's exactly what happened to them. Again, look at Colossians chapter one verse six. This is a great 
uh, a great uh, statement concerning them. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Colossians. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope which was laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, this gospel, just as it has in all the world, also it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it, been, even as, as, as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. The Colossians are the real deal. They're the guys that heard, the people that heard the gospel, uh, they heard the seed on, and had the good heart and it uh, took root in their heart and it produced fruit. These are true believers. It's none of this business of people being saved and then you don't see them again, they don't come to church, nothing happens in their life, none of that. He says, Paul says, basically, you Colossians receive the gospel, it's real, you've been firmly rooted in Christ, you understand the grace of God and truth. Continue to walk that way in that truth. He says, you're facing an ungodly teaching. Let your roots go deep in Christ. Let them go deep. They're like a tree that cannot be uprooted. Their foundation is strong. So don't hinder that. You know, you're reminded of John 15, where it talks about Christ being the vine, and believers are in that vine, and they're connected to that vine, and John says, abide in the vine. You know, believers, we draw our life from Christ. We draw our sustenance from Christ. We're nourished by Christ. And, you know, not everybody is that way. I like what uh, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 13 to the Pharisees. <clears throat> he says, I think one of the apostles said, Don't you, Lord, you're, you're, aren't you worried that you're going to offend these guys? He says, the great statement, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. I didn't plant these. I didn't give these people life in Christ. They're going to be uprooted. But those who know Christ, they have deep roots. They go, their roots go deep. Don't hinder that. Has God planted you in Christ tonight? Has he planted you in Christ? Has he given you eternal life in Christ? Then let your roots go deep. Be nourished on Christ. You don't need to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. Be nourished in him. Now, Paul warns a false doctrine. He must warn a false doctrine. He does it all the time in his epistles. Um, it's, it's the job of... of Spirit of believers to warn a false doctrine. Um, we must warn a false doctrine always, but abide, a believer should abide in Christ, be nourished on Him. They don't need to be taken away, sucked in by false doctrine. Now, the Word of God is tied in with this as well. You think of Psalm, Psalm chapter 1, for example, it talks about the person who meditates on the Word of God. What's he like? He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water, right? His roots go deep, and he yields his fruit in his season, in his time. And his leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. And so we need to allow the word of God to, to saturate our souls and, our, and be saturated with Christ. And so we can grow, grow strong in the Lord. What does it mean to walk in Christ? It means that we're deep, firmly rooted. A person's been deeply rooted. And what flows out of that is a conduct that glorifies God. There's another thing that characterizes those who walk in Christ. Secondly, it means we're being built up. Verse 7, now being built up in him, it says. That term is from the world of architecture. Word means to build on something or to build further. There's already a foundation. Christ has already, God has established our foundation in him. We've been deeply rooted, and now we build on that foundation. We build on that. And that's really sanctification, being built up in him. And he works in us every day to make us more and more like his son. Sanctification. 
Now, many, most people don't understand that. I said, as I say, we talked. I thought of an individual today who, who had years ago had made this superficial decision to follow Christ, but it didn't pan out. Well, he's not. He, he never took that. Never got rooted, and he's not being built up in the faith. And it, and it never happened because he never truly was saved. But he made that profession. But but Colossians teaches that those who are truly saved, they're continually being built up in Christ. And that's what happens when God truly does a work in your heart. You're being built up in him. That's a strong protection against the influences of false teachers. There's so many believers you talk to, they have no discernment whatsoever. Listen, all these guys on TV and radio, they're false teachers. And you're just, I thought you, you know, I don't understand. You say you're a believer and, and you got all this going on over here. I don't get it. Uh, but Paul's saying that this protects us from false doctrine and false teachers. Again, the word of God plays a role in this. In Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He's never going to see these elders again. And he's warning them and basically encouraging them to warn their churches. And he warns against what? False teachers. He says there's going to be false teachers coming in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to be like savage wolves, ravaging the flock, tearing it apart. He says, be on the alert for that, you guys. And he's going to leave them and never see them again. So this is what he gives them, his final instruction. And in verse 32 of Acts 20, he says this. And now, as I leave, I want to give you a final word of advice. I commend you to God. And what? The word of his grace. The word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How do we counteract the influences of false teachers? How do we combat the pack of savage wolves that's running wild in churches? Yes, churches and religious organizations and all that. Well, we take Paul's advice, right? We become strong in, in the Word of God, become strong in Christ, being built up. We, we can, and, and we should participate in that process as well. God has planted us, but He wants us to, to participate in this. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus prayed, "Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth." How, do you, how are you going to be sanctified? By being in the Word of God, right? By hearing the truth. Jude twenty. He says, Paul, Jude says, but you beloved, you beloved believers, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. It's a direct command of believers. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Let me ask you a question. Are you allowing the word of God to build you up daily, day by day? You know, what characterizes those who walk in Christ? Well, first of all, they're those who are firmly rooted. And secondly, they're being built up in him. And thirdly, it means that we are to walk in Christ means that we are established in the faith, as it says in verse 7. Established in your faith, it says in the NASB. Literally, it's established in the faith. In other words, we're firm in the faith. We are, uh, we are confirmed in the faith. We're solidly grounded in the faith. Um, that's what happens when our roots go deep and we're being built up. We're strong. We're established in the faith. And, and, that, and like I said, that's what it literally is, the faith. What is the faith? It's the Christian faith. It's what the scriptures teach. It's biblical content. It's what we believe. It's the content of the teaching which Epaphras delivered to the church at Colossae. He said, he adds this phrase here, just as you were instructed. Instructed by whom? Paul didn't teach these guys. Well, we saw earlier Epaphras did, right? One of their own in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul had, Paul had never been there. Epaphras taught them, and they were becoming established in the faith. By the way, in order for us to be established in the faith, we must be taught in the word. Must be taught in the Word. One of the things God uses as teachers to do that, teachers teach the Word of God, church hears it, and is built up in the Scriptures. 
So we're doing, we're to avail ourselves of the opportunity to hear the word of God, so we can be built up in the faith. And that's done publicly, it's done privately in your own private study of the Scripture. That's how God has ordained it to be. Now these three terms: firmly rooted, number one; number two, built up; and three, established in the faith. They all speak of they all speak of strength. They all speak of stability. Look at Colossians 2, verse 5 again. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, Paul says, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. People were stable believers. They were, becoming, they were new believers, relatively new, but becoming stable in Christ. Now, believers who walk in Christ, they're no longer children. Tossed about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by what? The trickery of men, just like these guys in Colossae, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. These guys, uh, that's what false teachers do. They, they come in, they deceive people, they're cunning in how they do it. Paul says, you don't have to be that way. That's why he says in Colossians 2, 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Persuasive arguments. Arguments that sound very appealing, um, but they're opposed to the gospel. No, it reminds me of uh, Colossians 1.28, what the goal is, Paul said. The goal, look at Colossians 1.28. He says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, every person complete in Christ. That's what he wants. He wants us to be complete in Christ. That's the goal. And so our lifestyles to, to follow suit. There's a fourth characteristic, however, that he mentions here as we talk about believers walking in Christ. It means, fourthly, that we are overflowing with, with gratitude. We're overflowing with gratitude, as he says at the end of verse 7. Now, that seems out of place. As you read the first three characteristics, they flow smoothly. They're all together. They, they're similar. Talking about the strength of a believer, Paul says, I want you to be strong, mature, and all this. But then he says, oh, by the way, don't forget to be thankful. That doesn't seem to flow with the rest of this thing. At first glance, it doesn't seem to flow with the rest of it. But think about this. Gratitude for believers is never out of place. And it revolutionizes a person's life. It makes you told, your attitude totally different. It's a very necessary element in life. Mike talked about that again this morning as well. It's a theme that Paul is always talking about. And he's talked about it several times in the book of Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 12. Uh, he says, we're giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed you were called in one body, and what? And be thankful. Again, he says it. Chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of what? Thanksgiving, right? He's always talking, he says it six or seven times in this letter. He talks about being thankful, thanksgiving. And it's not simply enough to show gratitude to the God for all he's done for us. He talks about being overflowing with gratitude. That's just not normal, is it? We, isn't our tendency to complain? 
constantly about everything under the sun. As Mike talked about this morning, we're always complaining about everything. It doesn't matter what it is. But God's people are called to be different. We're to express gratitude for things, for, for God, for all that God's done for us. So many things, spiritually, physically, material. He's blessed us in so many ways, it never ends. The Colossians had much to be thankful for. They could be thankful for the, God, the, the fact that the gospel came their way and they were bearing fruit in their lives. They could be thankful for the person and work of Christ. They could be thankful that they were no longer enemies of God, Colossians 1, 20, 1 through 25, that they were no longer enemies of God. They were reconciled to God through Christ. They could be thankful for the ministry of, 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 of Epaphras on their behalf and of Paul writing this letter. How'd you like to have the Apostle Paul write your, our, our church a letter if you were lived back in that day? It's amazing. It's not too much to expect for them to be grateful people. And what about us? Is it just the Colossians who should be that way? Overflowing with gratitude? This ought to affect all of us as well. Think about this. If we could only get a, 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 you know, a, 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 a handle on this concept, it'd be revolutionary. To be a thankful person about everything. It's a life-changing thought. It's life-changing. It ch- changes our whole attitude towards God and everything else, towards people, everything. It gives us perspective that God wants us to have. And so those who live under the lordship of Christ are what? They're thankful people. We say Christ is our Lord, and then and to be complaining, that's not, that's not expressive of saying that Christ is our Lord. And so these four things, and I guess if we get anything out of this letter tonight, it's this, Christ Jesus is Lord. Paul's made a great effort to get to this point. He is our Lord. We walk in lockstep with him. We do his bidding, right? We obey his word. We follow his marching orders. We're under his authority. He's our Lord. And since that is the case, and God has caused us to enter into his lordship, then we must live accordingly. We've received Christ Jesus as Lord, now let's walk that way, as if we have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Let's continue on with that. We've got to be aware that our roots are in him. They go deep in him. We're in the process of being built up in him. And we're to avail ourselves of the means of grace as well, by the way. We're established in the faith, and that will help us to keep away from false doctrine and, and the, 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 uh, the things that men come up with that are strange and, and foreign to the word of God. With all that God has done for us in Christ, there can only be one response. What's that? We should be overflowing with gratitude for all that he's done. What other response is possible? Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful again for your word. We pray that we would again think about the fact that you are our Lord and that we're to live under your lordship. We pray that we would yield our lives to you under your authority, that we would walk in all ways pleasing unto you, that we will stay away from any doctrine that's foreign to the word of God, doesn't line up with the teaching of the scriptures, that will hold to the tradition of Christ and what the word of God says. And we just pray that we would be those who would hold strong to, the, to, to what uh, has been passed down to us and pass it on to others as well. We just pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.